Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. On the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to today's episode. Today I want to talk to you about how the priesthood developed from the organization of our church till today. We we have in our mind this assumption that since the restoration occurred, it's always been the practice to give 12-year-olds the priesthood, ordain them to the office of deacon, confer upon the Neuronic Priesthood, and then every two years to work one up to a new office. And we have our thoughts in our mind that this restoration means that we restore things just as they were in olden times. And I think this is a good topic to kind of diffuse that and to maybe recognize things a little differently. The priesthood is actually a really cool subject that I really enjoyed going into. There's a wonderful article that I'm going to borrow, steal, and uh, plagiarize to death, which is from Men and Boys, LDS Aaronic Priesthood Offices, 1829 to 1996. And this is written by William G. Hartley. I uh, was hoping to have Brother Hartley on. That did not uh, has not worked out. Maybe at some future point uh, we'll be able to have him on and do something. But but I will link this article to uh, to this episode so that all of you can read it. It is just an incredible uh, document. It's about uh, sixty pages or so, maybe a little more than that. And so I'd like to go through it and uh, and share with you some thoughts. You'll probably hear some paper ruffling. I've got I've got different ones I'm trying to to pull from. And uh, so with that, we'll uh, we'll begin. So we we have the restoration. We have Joseph restoring uh, the church, organizing the church. We have him receiving the Aaronic priesthood from the hands of John the Baptist. We have him receiving the Melchizedek priesthood from Peter, James, and John. We're still not exactly clear uh, on the dates of the Melchizedek priesthood bestowal, uh, but we recognize that that priesthood was given. And and so it's important uh, to note then... That in, uh, in 1830, Revelation Doctrine and Covenants section 20 assigns several weighty duties to the priests, teachers, and deacons. Granted the keys of ministering of angels, Aaronic priesthood bearers are to preach, teach, expound, exhort, baptize, and administer the sacrament, to visit members in their homes, and to exhort them to pray vocally and secretly, and to fulfill family duties to ordain other officers and to conduct meetings whenever higher officers are absent. Ordained teachers are to watch over the church constantly, strengthen members, eliminate iniquity, hard feelings, lying, backbiting, and evil speaking, ensure that the church holds regular meetings, and assure that members perform their duties. Ordained deacons are to assist the teachers, but no specific assignments are spelled out. So only mature persons can adequately perform most of the duties that are given here. 
And I think we need to recognize that, that, that the way this revelation is laid out, that it tends to entail that, that what the, uh, what the uh, offices of deacon, teacher, and priest are to accomplish are some things that really are, are better suited to someone who's older and more mature in the gospel. And, uh, that these responsibilities were to be held by those who were more mature and older is pretty clear to church leaders in Mormonism's first generation. Uh, they recognized that mature males should take on the duties of being standing ministers unto the church. So during the church's first decade, Aaronic priesthood offices were conferred on a few selected youths, including William F. Cahoon, ordained as a priest at the age of 17, Don Carlos Smith, ordained to the priesthood at 14, and Erastrius and James Snow, teachers at 15 and 17, respectively. But the idea is that such cases were the exception. They were few and far between. We uh, we often tell the story in our church of William F. Cahoon's uh, youthful experience as a home teacher, which at the time was just called a teacher, visiting the uh, Joseph Smith family. And it's fairly well known. It's used a lot. And so William F. Cahoon recounts this idea of him being younger, him going to the prophet Joseph Smith's house, and he, he has this conversation with Joseph and Emma, asking if they pray, asking if they teach their family the principles of the gospel. Joseph and Emma re- respond that they're trying the best that they can, and uh, and he leaves a prayer and he, and he heads out, and so he did his job. And I think this story in many ways sets up this assumption that we just assume that it was always young people as the teachers, deacons, and priests. And I don't know if the church intentionally uses this story for that reason, that it won't cause any confusion in members' minds. But recognize again that Brother Cahoon as a young teacher was an exception to the rule. And so then if we kind of fast forward to the 1834 to 1838 period, this would be both in the Kirtland and Missouri stakes. The uh, the church uh, called 70s and that 70s were men holding what became termed as the Melchizedek priesthood. That that wasn't an original thought, but that it's what it became in a conferred idea that those who were 70s were holders of the Melchizedek priesthood. But priest teachers and deacons handled congregational matters. So there's the 70s who handled the the bigger issues in the church and then the deacons, uh, teachers and priests handled more of the ward duties. Uh, but it was more of the congregational issues. There really weren't wards at this point uh, early on. There weren't wards until the Nauvoo period. But deacons and, uh, and other Aaronic priesthood holders would handle the, the issues that came up in a local congregation. In 1834 and 1835, the Missouri Teachers Quorum tackled a variety of tasks that required adult abilities. It says here that two labored with a brother having a tobacco problem, one worked with a couple having domestic difficulties, two tried to settle a dispute about steers, one labored with a person for lying and extortion, and the one took a deacon along to settle a quarrel among three housewives. So we get the idea from some of these early experiences that these would have been things that would have been outside the reach of a 12, 14, and even 16-year-old young man in general. There might be exceptions to that, but in general, these are going to be issues that uh, you're going to need somebody wiser who's got some life experience uh, in tackling. Adult deacons at this time period assisted the priests and teachers and took care of places of worship. A, a traditional responsibility for deacons in the Christian churches. So you can see Mormonism is kind of adopting the role that deacons have in other faiths and implementing it into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's also important to note that stakes sometimes called presidencies for Aaronic priesthood quorums, but except for Missouri's teacher's quorum, uh, before 19, I'm sorry, before 1839, no full quorum of 48 priests, 24 teachers, and 12 deacons existed as described scripturally. So in order to have a quorum, one had to have this total number. Whereas today, we look at it a little differently. Until we get past that number, we'll, we'll always have a quorum. And once we get past that number, then we split it up into multiple quorums. And so if there is... uh is, you know, 10, I'm sorry, 12 deacons, all of a sudden you got a 13th deacon, now you need to have two deacons. Um, And so we recognize that the way in which we understood, implemented, and interpreted uh, these numbers has been a little different. Plans were drawn up in 1833 for temples in Missouri and Kirtland, and it reserved the first four rows for the presidencies of the Aaronic priesthood, meaning a bishopric and of the priests, teachers, and deacons quorums. And it's important to note here that such honors were certainly intended for men and not boys. I remember going to the Kirtland Temple 
And the leaders who took us through and gave us the tour looked at us and said, look up there, boys. The, those, uh, those rows there were reserved for the ironic priesthood. That was where your quorum would sit if you were living at the time in Kirtland. But, but that's really not the case. These, uh, these quorums were made up mostly of adults, almost exclusively of adults. And that such rows in the Kirtland temple were reserved, no doubt, for adult leaders in those, uh, in those priesthood offices. The 21 priest, that were uh, existed in 1845. It says here, from January to June 1845, the priests, teachers, and some deacons met at least monthly to coordinate uh, home visits. It says the 21 priests averaged 29 in age, although four were teenagers between 17 and 19. Two-thirds were newly ordained. Their average age at ordination was 28. Eight were English and the average length of time in the church was four years. None had held higher office. So we can see that, uh, again, the the younger people in Aaronic priesthood offices were much smaller in number than the adults. It says two seeds were planted in Nauvoo that influenced future Aaronic priesthood functioning in the LDS church. The first is the introduction of the temple endowment for which Melchizedek priesthood was prerequisite. You see, to go to the temple as a male, you had to have Melchizedek priesthood. And making that a prerequisite is going to decrease the pool of Aaronic priesthood holders of, that are available to hold the Aaronic priesthood and carry out its duties. The second was the development of wards and, and obviously the responsibilities within them. Uh, in Utah, each new settlement area was considered a potential stake and was given a stake branch settlement president. So sometimes it was under any of those three terms, stake, branch, settlement. And they were given a president. And it's kind of neat to see we what we call wards and stakes, what the meaning of the word stake was and how that word got started. The church would go somewhere. It would say, okay, we plan on someday having a stake here. And so they would officially set up the stake, set up a stake president. They would give that settlement a bishop. And then as the uh, number of members increased to a point where it could support a separate congregation, then another bishop and additional ward was created. Because wards were the local unit of governance after the 1840s, priests and teachers did not preside except in missions or in emergencies. Now, skipping ahead to the 1846 to 1877 time period. By the early 1850s, wards were considered the main local unit, and bishops were the chief local officers, a norm that has continued to the present. And so we see that we finally start to get into the spot where wards are kind of the uh, the status quo of how the church is organized. It says, some teachers heard charges of wrongdoing in decided guilt or innocence, but bishops handled most of these cases. The teacher's quorum was a source of manpower for such responsibilities as administration of the sacrament and helping the needy or most urgently conducting the home visits. And so we can see now there's beginning to be this delegation of responsibilities that uh, that are beginning to be delved out uh, to allow for various leaders to carry out uh, specific responsibilities. It was generally the order to confer the lesser priesthood on those who had not received the higher priesthood. The number of those eligible thus was not large because by the 1850s, the church required missionaries from Utah and men marrying in the temple or the endowment house to be Melchizedek priesthood holders. And so you can see this pool of possible Aaronic priesthood holders is beginning to dwindle smaller and smaller. It says that the first presidency strongly encouraged saints to keep the house of the Lord busy. And so if local congregations are going to be sending members to the temple, they're going to have to give them the Melchizedek priesthood. And if they're to keep the house busy, they've got to send them in large numbers. And little by little, you have almost any, you have almost no one left to, uh, to be an Aaronic priesthood. The first presidency encouraged bishops to send many of the young and sprightly persons who are strict to obey their parents. Uh, to the temple. That's pretty interesting. Records of the Kaysville Elders Quorum for 1865 show that 36 of its first members were ordained elders as teenagers, most in the endowment house. 14-year-old Ephraim P. Ellison, for example, was endowed on 24th of March, 1865. So you have a 14-year-old being ordained an elder and receiving his endowment. The average age for male endowment was 22. Now think about that. The average age for, what was it, the teachers said that they were like 28. And the average age now for endowment was 22. The most popular age was 23. And several were endowed at 14. Thus the endowment made it nearly impossible to find capable and active men in wards near temples 
who did not already hold Melchizedek priesthood. It's important to note that presiding Bishop Edward Hunter complained. He said, quote, but they have been almost immediately called out to receive their endowment, leaving vacancies, unquote. And so you can sense a little frustration on his part that he's being asked to have deacons, teachers, and priests, and yet he can never have enough people to get it done. Some leaders worried that the endowment wasn't be, was being bestowed too freely. Um, so some leaders were concerned about sending people too young uh, to the temple and people who are not quite prepared. Brigham Young commented that perhaps men should receive the endowment ordinances pertaining to the ironic order of the priesthood before missions, but do something that will prove whether they will honor the priesthood uh, before they can actually receive the Melchizedek priesthood. That was never put into place, but uh, it was an idea uh, or a quote at least that President Young had considered and, and put forth. And since people going to the temple had Melchizedek priesthood and it was depleting the available people for Aaronic priesthood, there was also kind of this stigma of a negative idea attached to being an Aaronic priesthood holder in almost being seen less than or as a second class person. And so you often found in these, in these wards, the Melchizedek priesthood taking people who did not hold the priesthood and really encouraging them to jump in with their quorum. And then obviously eventually being ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood. And this further depleted the, uh, the available people, uh, available for the Aaronic priesthood. Future apostles Francis M. Lyman and Rudger Clausen were ordained elders at 16. And Clarence Merrill was ordained as 70 in 1857 at the same age. Melchizedek priesthood quorums absorbed capable LDS adult manpower like a sponge, leaving few to receive the Aaronic priesthood ordinations. And so there were some attempts early on to create some solutions for this. First, priesthood home visits and watch care were the Aaronic priesthood's primary duty, and, and the church recognized that. Second, they chose the best high priest, the most substantial men, to be acting teachers so that wards could be perfectly visited. In other words, they essentially realized that the manpower was so short for Aaronic priesthood that they took Melchizedek priesthood holders, elders, and perhaps high priests, I don't know if high priest is an existing office at this moment, 70s and others, and said, we would like you to act in the office of a teacher, even though that's not your current highest office you hold. And uh, and so you see these... Uh, Older, wiser, experienced men essentially acting in the role of a teacher because there weren't enough young men to fill it. In some ways, we see a little bit of this today when the Melchizedek priesthood will bless or pass a sacrament because a ward doesn't have enough or a branch doesn't have enough Aaronic priest to do so. Third, they should take the young men with them that they might also have experience in teaching. And so you see kind of this apprenticeship uh, program that are the young men in the ward, the young men in the church are asked to go out with these Melchizedek priesthood holders who are acting in the office of a teacher. And so this was their solution early on uh, to what was going on. It says, the greatest engine in the church is the teachers. This was a quote by President Jedediah M. Grant. And, and so they saw early on that, you know, visiting members in their homes was one of the most important things we were doing in the church. And that teachers were to do it, and so therefore the teachers were one of the most important, uh, had one of the most important roles in the church, and as Jedediah Grant called them, the greatest engine. Throughout Brigham Young's presidency, Melchizedek priesthood men handled almost all Aaronic priesthood work in Utah, doing double duty by acting in both priesthoods. One elderly man was a 70 who served as an acting teacher in two wards an acting priest in one, and in the presidency of the stake's deacon's quorum. Another man, an elder, was both an acting deacon and an acting teacher. Bishop Hunter often exhorted priesthood men to magnify both priesthoods. An Apostle Matthias Cowley statement, quote, I was an elder before I was a deacon, unquote, was easily understood during the pioneer period. The most important duty of acting teachers was home visits. And so we, we see that these teachers in these home visits would, would in some ways handle aspects of church discipline. They would call members to repentance. They would help reconcile differences and conflicts. And, uh, and in doing this, obviously a 12, 14, even 16 year old is going to be kind of outside of his realm of experience to handle that. In short, Melchizedek priesthood holders acting in Aaronic priesthood offices during Brigham Young's presidency were a trusted and hard-working ward elite. But what was the impact of this policy on the young men? And so that's what we want to talk about next, is how, how using the older men to accomplish Aaronic priesthood duties essentially left the young men uh, to get themselves into trouble. And so in 1849 to 1873... 
it seems apparent that there's kind of this downward spiral of uh, of the behavior of young men in the church. It says, perhaps the youngest boys ever given LDS priesthood were George J. Hunt, ordained a priest at age nine in 1861, and Solomon W. Harris baptized and ordained a deacon at age eight. In the 19th century, there was no sequence of events that mark the progress of boys from childhood to manhood. You see, in the church today, we have this duty to God program. We have the scout program. And and we didn't have those then. And there was really no stepping stones to advancement within the priesthood. And there was no program set out to help these young men uh, to to begin to make this transition from being a young man into being uh, an adult. President Brigham Young expressed disapproval of ordaining inexperienced young men as deacons. He said, When you have got your bishop, he needs assistance. And he ordains counselors, priests, and teachers, and deacons. He calls them to help him. And he wishes men of his own heart and hand to do this. I dare not even call a man to be a deacon to assist me in my calling unless he has a family. It is not the business of an ignorant young man of no experience in family matters to inquire into the circumstances of family and to know the wants of every person. Some may want medicine and nourishment and be looked after, and it is not the business of boys to do this, but select a man who has got a family to be a deacon. And so you can see an early statement there by a church leader which is completely the opposite of our current policy and doctrine. It says, but at least 10 of Brigham Young's 17 sons who survived childhood received Melchizedek priesthood ordinations and endowments between the ages of 11 and 17 and on an average of 16.9 years. Apostle Wilford Woodruff, when called to a mission in 1849, ordained nine-year-old Wilford Jr. a priest so he could act in his father's absence to administer the Lord's Supper to the family. He reordained this son at age 13 for an unknown reason. At 16, young Wilford was ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood and endowed. And so again, you can still see these young ages at which members are receiving Melchizedek priesthood. Eliza R. Snow admitted that no thought was bestowed upon the spiritual culture of Zion's first generation of children until parents realized that the spirit of the world had crept in among our young people. As a result, children often manifested but little regard for religious exercises, and young men generally sent on a mission were extremely ignorant of the first principles of the gospel. Children's shortcomings stemmed in part from the fact that most adults and almost all youth did not regularly attend sacrament meetings, in good part because of the tiny chapels and Sunday schools flourished for children in the 1870s, but the smallness of the meeting houses meant that they were not expected to attend sacrament meetings. And so while Sunday school seemed to be doing really well, children didn't go to sacrament meeting because there wasn't enough room in the building. So some adults would go, not all, but some adults would go and children would not. Doesn't that seem quite a bit different from what we do today and perhaps teaching us a principle of part of the good that comes from being in church and being in sacrament it says in 1877, First Presidency message incurred the attendance of children at sacrament meetings. It says, quote, where there are meeting houses sufficiently spacious to admit of the children, they should be there. And to give you an idea of how troublesome these youth were, uh, listen to this. The, the stories, hallowing in the streets and breaking horses on the Sabbath, country boys with uncouth and ill manners in refusing one half the road on meeting teams, Boys' efforts to destroy the benches and dirty all they could with their feet, using pencils on the walls and nails on the rails of the banisters. Rough harassing, roughs harassing a mentally handicapped Swiss boy and stripping off his clothes, swearing a leader told some deacons to stop, saying by hell. Youths coming home at all hours of the night intoxicated and using the vilest language. Deacons going outside to smoke as soon as their meeting was dismissed. And boys considering that when they can smoke a pipe or cigar or chew tobacco, it is a sign of manliness. Or drinking whiskey for the same reason. A gang spitting tobacco juice on the floor at lectures and choir practices. Forming gangs. There were Provo roughs and Salt Lake roughs and boys throwing stones to break windows or each other's heads. Nothing, no, I'm sorry, noting such misbehavior, leaders who valued these youth felt the church could do more to help them. And so you can see kind of a bottom-up recognition that this isn't working and that something has got to change. The, uh, the primary reason for ordaining the youth was that adult men were reluctant to serve in the Aaronic priesthood offices. 
And so that's one reason why some youth were ordained to the Aaronic priesthood. It also says that nobody wanted to be a deacon, and some declined to condescend to be ordained to these lesser offices. So you can see there's this stigma again that we talked about earlier. It is a difficult task, one bishop lamented, to find sufficient quantity of efficient teachers. I have thought of, call, thought of calling upon some of the boys. It is very hard to get the older men to act as teachers. But the young men come forward and are willing to take their parts, and therefore we have to appoint the young men where older ones should be. So here you have uh, the suggestion that we start ordaining young people to Aaronic priesthood, that it really is the old men's job, but nobody wants it and nobody does it, and so there is a need. It says some bishops naturally resisted the new trend. Um, it says that, uh, and I don't have the uh, the young man's full name, but it says here Ephraim's bishop, Canute Peterson told his ward priesthood holders in 1874, quote, We might think that these quorums should be filled with young men, but the kingdom of God had increased, and there was evils and iniquities in the church. And it was the duty of the lesser priesthood to look after these things. And for this reason, men of experience was called. Now, I realize that the language sometimes is backwards, and I feel like my grammar is horrible as I read some of these quotes. But uh, but recognize that's their words, and it's, that's their words in their culture. So you see there's this reluctance on the leaders' parts to, uh, on their part, to, to make this change of begin to use the young men. They still see these ironic priesthood duties as needing wiser men to do them. But a trend began to uh, to change. It began to open up a more uh, acceptance, a more uh, widely feeling of acceptance towards having the young men be part of the Aaronic priesthood. James Leach, president of the Salt Lake State Deacons Quorum and acting bishop of the Salt Lake Second Ward, enthusiastically uh, suggested boys from 10 years of age and upwards should come and be ordained deacons. They can assist to clean up the house. And so you get uh, you get that kind of shift in what we're willing to do and not willing to do. And responsibilities changed. In the mid-1870s, deacons prepared meeting houses for meetings. They ushered, hauled food, fuel, and goods to the needy. They helped with the sacrament, task not beyond a youth's ability to handle. And so you can see them shaping their responsibilities and duties to their maturity. In uh, in 1877, which is the year that Brigham Young died, he died in August, but even though he died in August, he and his counselors had already taken the position that all boys needed at least some priesthood experience. And so you see a shift in Brigham Young's rhetoric, whereas in one quote he says that ironic priesthood should never be ordained to a young man who can't, because he can't handle these duties. By the end of his life, he has accepted that young men need to be involved in the ironic priesthood. In uh, in 1877 to 1908, the next time period we're going to talk about, the uh, first fully functioning temple was... Uh, was dedicated five months before Brigham Young's death in August of 1877. And so this temple was dedicated in April. And this was the St. George Temple. And so recognizing that the opening of the temple and fully functioning is now going to kind of increase the flow of people getting their endowments and that we're going to need to kind of spell out a little better how the Aaronic Priest and Melchizedek Priest are going to work. It was around this time that stake Aaronic Priesthood Quorum ceased to exist they implemented a far-reaching new policy, which was that it would be excellent training for the young men if they had the opportunity of acting the offices of the lesser priesthood as an apprentice companion to an experienced priest or teacher. Not only would they thereby obtain very valuable experience, but they would be likely to place a higher value upon Melchizedek priest in the future. This policy affirmed the idea, then current, that every boy should receive some priesthood office. And so you can see that there begins to be this increased ordination of youths. Within a year, uh, hundreds had received the Aaronic priesthood, usually becoming deacons, and the practice of ordaining boys became well established, and so it finally becomes part of the culture. But even at this time, ordination was not linked to any particular age. As young as nine and as old as 19 uh, were ordained uh, to priesthood offices. Some bishops, adhering to quorum maximums in the Doctrine of Covenants, allowed only 12 deacons at a time. And so if you had 15 people in your ward who would fit this calling, you called 12 of them and you didn't have anything else to do for the other three. Uh, so you can see there's still this kind of figuring our way through these uh, these policies. It, uh, quote, it is in our day very necessary at times to select wise, judicious, experienced, and sober men to fill the office of a deacon. 
So there's still this uh, reluctance on some and still feel the need to at least have some adult deacons in the midst of these youth. But it says many wards, however, began hiring custodians during the 1890s. And the practice was widespread after 1900. And so the taking care of the building, uh, that duty totally changes as the church begins to have this overarching custodial responsibility that is handled outside of the priesthood. During the 1870s and 1880s, a few wards started letting deacons pass the sacrament. In uh, in 1873, uh, in one ward, the acting teachers blessed the sacrament and the deacons passed it to the people. Now, again, acting teachers meant they held the Melchizedek priesthood. So we don't have anything doctrinally uh, astray here. But again, we're still reluctant to let the, the youth bless the sacrament, but we are letting the deacons pass it. Churchwide, however, few deacons or priests administered the sacrament. Elders acting as priest rather than the ordained priest administered the sacrament. And in most wards, because people believe that young men could not give proper dignity to the ordinance. And, and I think we still have a little bit of that today, but, but I think in general we've found that our young men are capable and, uh, and able to show the reverence needed for this sacred ordinance. Although youthful deacons became fairly common, young teachers and priests did not. And so while you begin to see the youth being used in the office of deacon, teachers and priests was still something that was not changing yet. It says the natural confusion between ordained and acting teachers resulted in an official explanation in the Approvement Era in 1902. That article said, There are in every ward a number of brethren selected to be acting teachers under the direction of the bishopric. These are usually men holding the Melchizedek priesthood, but called to act in the lesser or Aaronic priesthood for visiting and teaching purposes. They are appointed as aides to the bishop, and he or one of his counselors presides at these meetings. The teacher's quorum is another body entirely. It consists of 24 ordained teachers presided over by three of their number. They do not hold the higher Melchizedek priesthood. They act in the capacity of teachers in the ward to which they belong when called to do so under the direction of the bishopric. But the two bodies of teachers should not be confounded. The acting teachers selected by the bishopric as their aides do not form a quorum at all. They have no fixed number or distinct ordination as teachers. And so you can see the effort on the church to try and spell this out. Between 1908 and 1922... Uh, for th- and it starts off kind of talking about some of the changes that happened there, but it prefaces this with, for three decades after the 1877 reorganization, Aaronic priesthood work was characterized by the dual recognition that it was a good thing to introduce boys early to quorum activity, but that most of the ward's real work required adult men's involvement. And so there's still, again, this reluctance to completely hand the job over to the young men. Mormon missionaries uh, during most of the 19th century were typically married men, In 1886 to 1890, 18% of missionaries were single. However, by 1895 to 1900, the figure was 51%. So you see this major shift very quickly in it being single brethren going out on missions and not married brethren. A major reason was economic. A growing number of married men were salaried employees with larger mortgages. And so single men became the uh, the pool of possible missionaries being used and being sent out to the world to deliver the gospel message. General authorities decided in 1908 to try to upgrade priesthood work throughout the church. And so for the first time, you begin to see some correlation. There is, in 1908, uh, a general priesthood committee. They are called to generate lesson manuals that will be used throughout the church. Joseph F. Smith requested in April 1908 that boys be given something to do that will make them interested in the work of the Lord. And we also, at this time, have some of these ideas that come forth, major reforms that are known as the priesthood movement. The committee's recommendations that each boy move systematically through the Aaronic priesthood callings, they suggested fixed age groupings. Deacons should be ordained at 12, teachers at 15, priests at 18, and elders at 21. These groupings let the committee write age-specific lessons and gave quorums a social function. And so we see now, finally, there is this split uh, of people being delegated by ages into Aaronic priesthood quorums. And then this lesson material being correlated to their specific ages. 
and this is in 1908. The committee's another uh, idea within the committee was uh, their solution to rename these visits ward teaching. And so rather than have the teachers do the teaching, you now have a, an actual program called ward teaching. And this allows you to delineate between the teacher's office and the priesthood responsibility to visit members in their home. This program is based on two principles. Number one, elders have a scriptural obligation to watch over the church, much like the Aaronic priesthood mates. Now, this is section 20, verse 42 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And two, ward teaching was a bishop-supervised task independent of a specific office. And so those two changes gave a lot more flexibility to the program and allowed for some more changes to, to begin to kind of be understood and be sought after. Uh, David O. McKay, as an apostle, explained the new ward teaching program at General Conference in October of 1912. Finally, there is this official push from for older senior companions and junior companions in ward teaching. That it's not necessarily a priesthood delineation, but an age delineation. There should be a older, wiser person combined with a younger, inexperienced person, and so that some training can go on. The new program worked well. Percentages rose steadily during the first uh, decade of its practice. It rose from 31% in 1912 to 54% in 1914 and 64% in 1920. I don't know how your ward's doing today, but I know our ward, uh, I don't think is quite at 64%. So that's, that's pretty impressive. It says in the October 1911 general conference that deacons were in fair condition, but that teachers and priest quorums were not functioning. The local authorities generally fail to grasp the dignity and importance of the calling of the teacher and priest. And the boys cannot help but f- but feel as far as quorum work is concerned that the organization is broken down and that they are being held on a kind of waiting list until they're old enough to be ordained elders. In other words, they really don't have a spelled out program that is encouraging and rewarding them as they progress within the Aaronic Priesthood. There's the starts of this, the less material is age specific, but there is not yet this uh, this program to to help them feel important at whatever stage they're currently at. There is... Uh, a quote from that same uh, October 1911 uh, general conference. It says, we have failed to live up to the Lord's plan. And so the solution came and it was a new, uh, it was that new assignments were geared to the age abilities of the boys. And so within the next year, um, there begins to be some, some handouts given, some discussions that go about that begin to take deacons, teachers, and priests and assign each of those three offices a specific uh, duties specific responsibilities and this begins to be spelled out even in the church magazines in the 1913 improvement era and uh, and even in 1916 there's some lists that get handed out that give our deacons certain responsibilities teachers certain responsibilities and priests certain responsibilities i'll just share the priest one for instance Administer the sacrament, pass the sacrament, assist in ward teaching, be Sunday school officers or teachers. So it sounds like even Sunday school presidency members, priest, which is different than today. Be mutual officers or teachers, baptize, be ward choristers, carry messages for bishopric, hold cottage meetings, preaching the gospel in homes, assist the elders, do missionary work in the ward, read scriptures at ward meetings, supervise fast offering collections, help bishop care for the tithes. Help bishop with wayward boys, take part in meetings, haul gravel and make cement walks around meeting houses, help with teams to level public squares, help supervise ward amusements. And so you begin to see some of these responsibilities that are very similar in some ways to what we have today. One young man advised, I'm sorry, one young man who advanced through Aaronic priesthood ranks during this period was Harold B. Lee, later church president. His ordinations show that the announced ordination of 12, 15, 18, and 20 were only recommendations because President Lee became a deacon just before he turned 11, a teacher the month before he turned 14, and a priest two months before he became 16, and an elder four months before the, before the age of 19. And so you can see that even though there are some guidelines, they are not hard and fast. In mission areas, because of the lack of a temple, of temples, adult men were sometimes ordained to only the Aaronic priesthood. The 1891 statistical reports for Europe show that close to 20% of LDS men held some priesthood office, roughly the same figure as in the United States stakes. But in the United States, about 25% of all priesthood holders had Aaronic priesthood, compared to 40 to 44% in Europe. The Australia mission had a policy from 1896 to 1928 that men did not receive the Melchizedek priesthood until they had immigrated to Zion and were ready to make temple covenants. And so you can see some policy differences there. 
President Joseph F. Smith criticized a disposition in the church to hurry the boys in the priesthood or to advance those who were not performing in the offices they held. And uh, and often, I think in today's church culture, a boy hits a certain age and we just move him up to the next office without really considering whether he's magnifying what he had uh, what he had to do in the previous office. And in some cases, it may be good to hold a young man back a little bit. And in some cases, it may be harmful to him. And I think that's where the spirit comes in. So rather than just following a... Uh, a hard and fast rule that it be left more up to the spirit. I just, I wonder if that's the way we do it or, or if it's, uh, if it's done in another manner. In many wards, members felt, uh, were accustomed to seeing dignified older men handle the sacrament. They felt uncomfortable when boys took over. In 1909 and in 1910, after reforms had begun, one committeeman canvassed many wards to discover that older men still most frequently administered the sacrament. A second reported widespread reluctance to let the priests bless the sacrament. And so you see there's still this, uh, again, this hesitation to, to adopt and adapt to, uh, to these new policies. In 1922, presiding bishop Charles W. Nibley and his counselors spearheaded a new effort with a hearty support from the First Presidency and the Twelve to invigorate the neglected Aaronic priesthood. The new program consisted of advancement for faithful service. Before each ordination, boys were given examinations by bishops to determine their diligence. The ordained teacher should be assigned districts in the ward where he will accompany and assist the visiting ward teachers. While priests may be called upon to administer the sacrament, bishops were urged to use teachers and priests as youthful ward teachers. And so you finally start to see this uh, this program of advancement. In 1940, the presiding bishopric recognized that pairing boys as ward teachers was not very effective and that people will feel better about it if an older and more experienced brother takes the lead. And that's a quote. The practice of calling acting teachers diminished and died during the 1940s and was replaced by the successful boy-adult ward teacher team, even though the terminology lingered throughout the 1930s. Now we're really starting to get into getting closer to modern times. Surveys in 1931 showed large numbers of boys inactive in priesthood quorums, Sunday schools, or the YMMIA. And so that was the original acronym for the Young Men's Program. Uh, Apostle Richard L. Lyman admitted that same year that the boy problem is tremendously difficult. Proposed as early as 1928 was a plan designed to increase boys' church activity through better coordination between auxiliaries and quorums. This ironic priesthood correlation plan coordinated the YLMIA and the YMMIA, the, I believe, young ladies and men, scouting program and Sunday school and seminary at the general stake and ward committees with representation from all five groups. So you finally have all five groups sitting down together and beginning to kind of coordinate uh, with each other to help uh, streamline this program uh, to have a better effect on our, our young people. In April 1931 General Conference, uh, this plan was put into place. It says that the plan urged that boys fill quotas of assignments each year with the result that quorums begin keeping more detailed records. They uh, finally, in 1942, the improvement era uh, listed seven requirements for the boys. You finally start to see certificates coming out for awards for things. Uh, it says that the requirements were 75% attendance at meetings, 12 priesthood assignments carried out, keeping the word of wisdom, paying tithing, and at least one talk in a church meeting and participation in a quorum service project. And so you see the early uh, the early kind of beginnings of the Duty to God program. In the 1960s to 1990s, and this is kind of finishing off, uh, bringing us up relatively uh, up to modern time, the youth's responsibility, it transferred from the presiding bishopric uh, to a general young men's presidency. And so whereas the presiding bishopric had other responsibilities, this responsibility was broken off and uh, given to... Uh, uh, another group of leadership where they could just focus on this. Melchizedek priesthood quorum leaders rather than bishoprics became responsible for calling, receiving reports from, and supervising home teachers. Uh, in 1964 is when the ward teaching program became the home teaching program. Adult men who were still deacons, teachers, or priests were were obvious uh, misfits within an Aaronic priesthood quorum. And so now you see this transition to what we now have as prospective elders. In 1911, President Joseph F. Smith urged bishops not to mix up the old men with bad habits 
with the young boys. In other words, here's these older men who have not moved on to Melchizedek priesthood. There's a reason why they have not, and yet we're still having them meet with the Aaronic priesthood quorums. And so it was time to move those uh, those adults uh, on, and these are the group that become prospective elders. In 1917, the General Priesthood Committee recommended that adult Aaronic priesthood bearers be grouped separately and have their own presiding officers, but little came of it. In 1930, local leaders were instructed to have adult Aaronic priesthood members meet with the elders quorum. In uh, in, 18, or in 1932, uh, and then the years following, the terminology changed to senior Aaronic priest. I'm sorry, senior Aaronics, Aaronic priesthood over 21, Aaronic priesthood adults, adult members of the Aaronic priesthood, and then again most recently, prospective elders. Even passing sacrament trays among the congregation requires no priesthood authority. With or without priesthood, men, women, and children, one by one, pass the sacrament tray or cups to the next person down the row. Recognizing this reality, President Heber J. Grant wrote to a mission president in 1928 that there was no rule in the church that only priesthood bearers could carry the sacrament to the congregation after it was blessed. While it was custom for priesthood men or boys to pass around the bread and water, he said it would be in no wise invalidate the ordinance if some worthily young brethren lacking priesthood performed it in the absence of ordained boys, and he had no objection if it were done. So this leads kind of to an idea of the discussion going on in the church right now about women in an increased visibility and increased role within the church. And so there's some leeway here, and I think we'll see it at some point, uh, where we have sisters being able to pass the sacrament. And uh, and that'll be kind of exciting if that happens. It says that women and custodians usually prepared the sacrament table, so it did not appear on a list of priesthood duties until 1933, uh, which I think is also another important observation. Metal sacrament trays need to be polished with fine white linen. I'm sorry, need to be polished and fine white linen or lace tablecloths need to be laundered, starched, and pressed. Traditionally, the work of women. Women also baked the sacrament bread in many wards. Says Kate Corliss of Salt Lake City's 4th Ward, took care of the sacrament table for a quarter century after 1906. She crocheted the cloth, polished the silver trays, baked and sliced the bread, and set the sacrament table. As late as 1943, presiding bishopric publicized for bishops the example of young women in one ward who take care of washing and sterilizing the sacrament sets after each service. Annette Stenick Huntington recalled that during the 1930s in immigration, in immigration stake, the young girls in MIA filled the water cups in the kitchen and placed the bread on the trays. We then prepared the sacrament table with the cloth and trays on it. It was a wonderful privilege I shall always remember. She also said, when paper cups, no, I'm sorry, when paper cups replaced glass cups in sacrament trays during the 1940s, dishwashing ceased and so did female involvement with sacrament vessels. Although women still launder and press the linen, beginning in 1950, presiding bishopric assigned teachers to prepare the sacrament table, specifically requesting that this task not be delegated to LDS girls or their mothers. However, in 1955, the presiding bishopric told church members that young women, where desired, could be assigned care of the table linens and trays following the meetings. And so there's this back and forth over the role of the females and the sisters in the church in preparing uh, the sacrament and uh, and obviously we also discussed their role in even passing the sacrament. And so that kind of uh, finishes off. Now this document again was, uh, I think it went from page 80 to about page 140 and so there's uh, there's 60 pages in this document. I obviously zipped through them and drew out the most important things. But what I wanted to, to just share with you is that we can see that this process of development of priesthood quorums in the delineation between Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood is not as black and white as we think it, it was set up to be. And we realized that, one, the process of getting from where we were to where we are was complex. The process of making the decisions that affected this transition are complex. It's not just a matter of one day the prophet gets up and receives a revelation and they go from point A to point Z, but rather there are these baby steps all along the way. 
And maybe reflecting on this idea, might we consider how other issues in the church perhaps are affected in the same way? And maybe we can let go of some of the assumptions and expectations we have about how revelation works, how changes in the church occur, how much of it is God's will that it be that way, and how much of it is the church's recognition of what practices, policies, and principles work best to bring people closer to Christ. And that even if God didn't reveal the idea, that he could still be in approval of it. This was some of my thoughts as I put this episode together. I know this episode is probably boring as all can be, but I hope it uh, it gives you some insight that, that will be new and fresh and things that you had not considered or thought about or were aware of before. And I also hope that uh, each of us might recognize as we struggle at times with things that don't fit, with things that don't make sense, might we use this example as one way to kind of tear things down and put things back together and realize that the real way that things happen is not always the way we picture them happen in our mind and that this gives a lot more flexibility to other issues in the church as well. Thank you for listening today. Uh, please remember to uh, to be a premium subscriber and get these, issue, these episodes earlier than everybody else. Uh, God bless you and, uh, and have a great day. Thank you.